My name is Tanya Aviles, and I'll be doing the scripture reading this morning. Uh, please open your Bibles to Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. You can also read on the screens, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Every time I stand up here, the children flee. I don't know what happens here. <laughs> um, again, my name is Peter. I am so glad to be here with you all. We are continuing our series in the book of Romans. It took us a few weeks to get out of verse 1 through 7. Here we are at verse 8 uh, on to 15. If you look in verse 8... Uh, you see the word proclaimed. If in verse 9, you see the phrases, uh, phrase preaching of the gospel. And then in verse 15, we have preach the gospel. All of these three uh, phrases or words uh, have at their uh, core this word euangelion in the Greek. And it's the word where we get the word evangelism or evangelistic. And so the title of today's talk is Evangelism. And uh, Paul really begins to lay out his own evangelistic sense of call, that God was calling him to be an evangelist, and he has a desire or intent to evangelize. And he really has a heart for it. He feels it. He has emotions about it. It's things that keep him up at night and cause him to wake up in the morning. Now, I, um, I preach for a living. I'm a pastor. And uh, <clears throat> I guess I have an evangelistic call as well. Uh, I got to tell you, though, that I don't really like this word very much. I've never liked it. It just induces feelings in me and conjures up images that uh, aren't pleasant. I'm not proud of the fact that I react this way to this word evangelism or other people doing evangelism. If I were to uh, get the loop or come to church and I see that the preacher is going to talk about evangelism, I would think, all right, I get to catch up on my other articles that I get to read or something. But I would not be excited about this topic. And so I was a little bit hesitant about even mentioning um, this word in my title or even letting you know that I was going to talk about this. Uh, midweek. But I have really done sort of a 180 degree turn about this whole idea of evangelism. Historically, I don't like this word. 
Historically, I don't have good feelings or experiences with regard to this word. But this is actually a really good word. It means literally good message. It's where we get the word angels. They are good messengers, messengers of good. And so when I sit down and think about this word, I think I like it. And then over the years, I've really come to like this concept. And so my goal today is to share, I think we're going to move pretty briskly, but it's going to feel pretty uh, saturated with content. We're going to move through five points. But the goal of these five points is to reorient your relationship to the concept of evangelism, to the word evangelism, and maybe even the practice of evangelism. Okay, there's five points. Ready? They are evangelism is necessary. Evangelism is mandatory. Evangelism is natural. Evangelism is supernatural. And evangelism, finally, is mutual. Necessary, mandatory, natural, supernatural, and mutual. Okay, first evangelism is necessary. Verse 8 through 10 says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Okay, that's some evangelism right there. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, that's some more evangelism, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul mentions here that he is very, very proud of their faith. I don't know uh, why he's proud of their faith. I don't know exactly uh, what their faith consisted of or what trials this, uh, their faith endured. But Paul mentions that their faith is famous, that other people of the faith have talked about their faith probably in an exemplary way, right? So that's a little bit that we know. But he says in verse 14 and 15, and I love this about Paul. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, this word in verse 14, barbarians, uh, this is what um, linguists would call an onomatopoeia. Anybody know what an onomatopoeia is? It's fun to say for sure, but it means that it's a word that sounds like, when you say it, it sounds like the meaning of the word. So an example of an onomatopoeia is, a, is the word buzz, right? Or <gasps> hiccup. Yeah, that's an onomatopoeia. And the word barbarians, when you say it in the Greek, it just sounds like gibberish. And it's meant to sound like other languages apart from Greek. So Greeks had this ego about, you know, their own uh, language and their um, intellectualism. And so any other language, any other group, they were called barbarians, right? And their word for it sounded like gibberish because that's what every other language sounded like to them. And so Paul repeats that in verse 14 when he says, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise, i.e. Greeks, and to the foolish, i.e. barbarians. Right? So what is Paul doing? He, he regularly slips in these little 
um, implications, these little subtle jabs. What he's saying is this, your faith is famous. Everybody knows about your faith. It's commendable, right? But Paul is saying, I am still eager, even though your faith is great, even though I should probably go somewhere else and preach to people who don't have the gospel, whose faith isn't great, I'm still eager to preach to you. What is he saying? He's saying because you are both Greek and barbarian, you are both wise and foolish. What is he saying? I know there's some, even some among you, who think you're wise, that you're as wise as the Greeks. Nobody would call you foolish. Nobody would accuse you of being barbarian. Yet I'm still eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Meaning, both the wise and the foolish, both who think they are wise and both who are certain of their own foolishness, they both, the whole spectrum of them, still need to hear the gospel. That is, evangelism is necessary, meaning the gospel is both how we are, what theologians call justified, and how we are sanctified. The gospel is how we become saved initially and how we are saved eventually. You are never, ever, ever too mature to hear the gospel, to have the gospel preached to you. The gospel, evangelism, is always necessary for everybody. Paul is saying here, nobody, even if your faith is great, even if your faith is famous, trust me, you're a fool. And you need the gospel. Compared to the wisdom that is found in the gospel, you're all just barbarians. Paul is on a mission towards civility, gospel civility. So I ask you, do you need to hear the gospel? Is your faith too great? Is your faith so famous in your own mind? Do you believe your own reputation about your faith? It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for three minutes or 30 years or 60 years. You still need the gospel. The gospel is still necessary in your life. It is how you are saved. It is how you are matured. It is how you come to realize at your very best, you're still just a fool. Evangelism is not just something that we do for those people out there Evangelism isn't a favor you're doing to the world, but evangelism is something that you are always perpetually on the receiving end of. You need to do evangelism to yourself. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need the gospel more than anybody else you know. You need the gospel more than anybody else you don't know. Do you believe this? That the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul was eager to preach, this is what cuts through the wisdom and foolishness of humanity? 
and even the foolishness and wisdom of your own heart. Second, evangelism is mandatory. Verse 11 says, For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. And then verse 14, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The two key phrases I want you to focus on, first is the word impart, that Paul is wanting to impart. He longs to impart some spiritual gift to these people. And then in verse 14, he feels that he is under obligation. Now, this word under obligation is the Greek word debt. Paul feels a debt to the church in Rome. He has never met the church in Rome. He's never been there. He doesn't know a single person from this church. He has absolutely no personal relationship to them. How is he under debt? Well, there's two ways that you can be in debt. One is if you borrow something from the Roman church, right? So now you have to pay it back. You're under debt. The other way that you can be in debt is if somebody else gives to you something for the church in Rome. You catch that? And what that means is God has given, God has entrusted something to Paul for the church in Rome. God is saying, Paul, I am going to reveal the mystery of the gospel to you. I'm going to cause your eyes to open and understand something. And I am charging you with the task, with the job, that's what a call is, to preach this gospel to my beloved people in Rome. And therefore, Paul is under obligation because he has been entrusted by God. Now, there's a philosophy here. There's a principle here. And what is that? It's this. Every single person is blessed so that they can be a blessing. This is what God said to Abraham. I have blessed you so that you can be a blessing. That means that you have a debt to this world. You don't have the freedom to live your life just the way you want to. That's not reality. In reality, God has entrusted good things to you. He has blessed you so that you might be a blessing. And we derive from this principle a law, a purpose. The only reason God ever blesses anyone of anything is so that they might be a conduit of that very blessing. God does not bless you so that you can simply be blessed. What are your blessings? Count your blessings as they say. There's a theology of justice and love in this principle. It is unjust for you to hoard, for you to see yourself as the end rather than just the means. 
The way God has designed this world to bless this world is by blessing the world through you. When there is, for example, poverty in this world, do you know why there is poverty in this world? Because there are too many of us who see ourselves as the end goal of money. You know, when the world lacks opportunity, do you know why? Because we are hoarding opportunities. It is unjust and it is unloving to see ourselves as anything other than mere conduits. Paul was indebted to the church in Rome. He was indebted to the whole world. And so are we. We are blessed to be a blessing. It is the very definition of love and justice. This is God's definition, God's way. If you are older in this room and you have a lifetime of wisdom, you have stories, you are under debt, you are under obligation to share that wisdom and share those, those stories with those who don't have those stories yet who don't have the kind of wisdom that you have. If you're here and you're younger, you have energy and you have ideas that others who are older just don't have anymore. And it is your job to share that energy for the good of other people. If you are here and you're married and you have experience, your job is to mentor people who aren't yet married, who are still asking dumb questions. That's your job. If you're here and you're single, your job is to live life to the full on behalf of those who are married. <laughs> Go out there and have fun for me. Right? If you're wealthy, you have something. If you're poor, you have something. If you're white, my goodness, you have a lot of things. If you're minorities, I don't know, what do we have? <laughs> we are all under debt. The Pew Foundation did a research project which they released in 2008. They said this, by the year 2050, 29% of our country will be Hispanic. 13.4% will be African American or black, 9% will be Asian, and 47% will be white. Are you ready to love this world? Are you ready to be a conduit of God's love and blessings and his gifts and his message, and his word and his deed to this kind of world? We are all under Debt. Evangelism is mandatory. Third, evangelism is natural. Verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Theologians, uh, there's a little bit of a debate about this phrase, in my spirit, because some theologians want to argue that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit. But uh, the good theologians will tell you there's no way to argue for that. Paul is talking about his own spirit. And then they begin to debate about what 
Paul means by in my spirit. And the, um, the very best, in my opinion, of the theologians conclude that Paul is referring to his deepest self. What he's saying here is this. In my heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, this wasn't just a job to Paul. Paul wasn't a hired hand. He wasn't supposed to go to med school like me and then went to seminary and now this is what he's stuck with. Right? Paul was a, a zealous scholar. He was a highly accomplished individual. He had no wants in his life. He was set. And yet God called him out of that life to this one that was filled with persecution, with misunderstanding, with toil, with pain, with politics, with agony, with loneliness. In his deepest self, in his heart of hearts, in his spirit, out of his spirit, he ministered. He sensed God's call on his life. He serves God from his heart, in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his son. And he believed in his preaching. Imagine a preacher that believes what he preached. See, we all preach a gospel way bigger than ourselves, don't we? When I tell stories, I like to tell stories about myself rather than stories about great missionaries. And so it's a ministry philosophy, a decision that I've made about what kind of stories I'm going to tend to tell. And most of them are going to have to do with something that's happening in my personal life. That's a decision I've made a long time ago. And I probably will stick to it for the rest of my preaching life. And I've also made the decision that if I tell stories about myself, I'm also going to tend to tell stories that are more self-deprecating than self-elating. I don't want to tell stories of my successes because I run out of those stories so quick. But I reach into my pockets and I have a forever supply of stories of mistakes that I make. I love it. I will always have a job as a preacher as long as I live. Because if I live, I will make mistakes. Right? So we all preach a gospel bigger than ourselves. But I still believe the gospel. Paul believed the gospel. Can you imagine that? an evangelist, a preacher that actually believes and he loves God and he loves the people that he's ministering to? Don't you want a preacher like that? That's what Paul was. And so for Paul, evangelism, that is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, that was 100% all natural. It's what we would call overflow. When you cut Paul, he bled the gospel. He didn't feel guilt about the fact that he was a Christian and not doing much about it at work. Can you imagine that work life where everybody knows you're a Christian and every time they prick you, you bleed the gospel? And it's totally natural, so it's not weird. It's not off-putting. It's just part of who you are with your neighbors, with your family members. I hope to get there one day, but it's still really unnatural for me. But for Paul, it was completely natural. And to me, evangelism at its best, it's just love. You have love in your heart. 
for God, for people, and you believe in it, you believe what you say, you do what you say, you're completely integrous as a person, we slice you up, we take a cross-section of you, and what we get on the outside is the same as what we get in the middle is what we get on the other side. Imagine if Christian leaders were that instead of the headlines we tend to make. Evangelism is totally meant to be natural. You know, what I realize is that we are actually all evangelists about something that we believe in, that we're excited about, that we care about. Do you know this? I have sold so many of these Apple products, I cannot tell you, and have not received it. I have paid this company to sell their products. I also love Subarus. More than any other car make, I love Subarus. I have owned five Subarus in my life. And I have sold many more than five. I can't help it. I'm a natural evangelist when it comes to cars, products, movies, articles, little tidbits, and little pieces of advice about life. I can't help but share. I am a natural evangelist. And I want to say to you that you are all natural evangelists about something. What are you an evangelist about? My wife cannot shut up these days about gardening. She is so into gardening these days. She has talked people into gardening. I have not heard mention Jesus once. (laughs) My goodness. But she can't help it. She's a natural evangelist when it comes to gardening right now. I was on a longer run on Saturday. I went on a um, supposed to be 12-mile run with Marshall, but we only ended up doing 11 Uh, But during the run, while we're running around the island, Marshall listened to a sermon that I suggested he listen to because I really liked it. It's a Tim Keller sermon. And Marshall listened to it twice. uh, And he regurgitated almost the entire sermon to me while we were running. He was so excited about the content of this sermon. He said it was so good. Now, I didn't ask him about the sermon. I'd rather he be regurgitating my sermons, tell you the truth. But he was very excited. He believed in the content of this sermon. And it was spilling out of him. He was a natural evangelist about it. And here's the point. The point is this. The problem is not the message. It's not the messenger. It's not even the mandate. It's not that you should, but you don't. The problem is you don't believe in the product. If you find yourself at a place in your spiritual life where you are not naturally sharing your faith with others, I would not try to work on your ability to share your faith or your mandate to share the faith, but I would ask you about your faith. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Do you actually believe it? Research, think, process, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I swear, literally to God, you will end up becoming a natural evangelist. The primary problem is with your product. Do you believe in it? Do you love your product? Do you love God? 
Do you know God's love for you? Do you know what it means that you have hope in your life because you have a way to have your sins forgiven? Do you know that you commit sins every single day? That at your core you are selfish and self-centered and you think more about yourself. You are more self-conscious than conscious of anybody else. Do you know that you need freedom and rescue from that kind of orientation? That the only way to get that is Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ is the only philosophical way to justify morality in this world? Do you, do you believe? What do you believe? Work on the product. I would love, this is one of my dreams for this church, that you would naturally be inviting people to church because you feel you have something to invite them to. That you're not embarrassed about what's going to dribble out of the preacher's mouth. I'm not going to embarrass you. And you know that. And so you're going to bring people. That what we do, the weird stuff is kind of fun weird. And you want to invite people into that. There's a stream that's flowing and it's filled with life. And you would love for your friends and neighbors and family members to just dip their toe in it for a moment. Because you know it's going to be refreshing and salve to their wounds. I would love for us to have a culture of gathering, of growing, of inviting. For there to be buzz about our church rather than hype. I don't want to overpromise because then you end up under-delivering. What if you we were proud naturally of this gathering, of the ministries and the programs of our church? Then you will invite them. I guarantee you, if I asked you not to do it, you would find some stealthy way to do it. Okay, fourth, evangelism is supernatural. Verse 10. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul really, 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 really wants to come. So far, no score. Not yet. Why not? It's not God's time yet. So here's the point. There is such a thing as the will of God. Now, for me, this is kind of a special point. Personally, for me, this is, what, this is my personal application point. I like this the best for me. Because I have been a Christian long enough to get so suspicious and cynical about the phrase God's will. I have heard so many Christians use it to their convenience. I've seen so many Christians hide under the banner of God's will to do what they want to do or even to do evil that I just don't even want to use the phrase God. It's way too slippery for human nature. I don't know how to think about God's will without knowing that I have a will. And often, I like to confuse the two. My way is Yahweh. Right? But there is such a thing as God's will. And the Bible says we're supposed to seek God's will, not our own. Even Jesus himself prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And ultimately, evangelism is supernatural. He wanted to come and preach the gospel to them. He says he longs to do it. 
He's counting the days till he gets to do it, and yet he can't do it because it's not God's will. Evangelism is a work of God that we join in. Evangelism is the will of God that we get to partake in. Evangelism is God's deal, not ours. There's not one single person you've ever, ever led to Christ, nor have I. God has done all of it. Like every single person in here that claims to be a Christian has been brought to this community or to, or to faith in general by God himself. At the end of the day, I don't believe in accidents. I believe in God, that he works and he causes us to move and live and have our being. That even in our groping in the darkness, it is his will for us to find him. And it takes the burden off of me that from start to finish and everything in the middle is God's will and work. And this is precisely why we pray, because it's up to God. And the fact that it's up to God actually causes us to work even harder because that's the fuel that causes us to work. If we believe that it's God, we will work even harder. We will pray even more. This is the way theology works. Belief leads to action. It's easy to illegitimately triangle ourselves in to try and do the things that only God himself can do. For us to take on anxiety and responsibility and say, I will save this person. I will help this person. I will be the mediator. No, you're not going to be the mediator. There's already a mediator. Did you know that? Evangelism is supernatural. Last, evangelism is mutual. Verse 11 to 13. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Okay, great. Paul's a giver. And then verse 12. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some spiritual or some fruit among you also, even as also among the rest of the Gentiles. Evangelism is always of mutual benefit. God says he himself is the only true giver. I just finished a book, business book this week called Give and Take. Anybody heard of it? It's a fantastic book. It talks about givers and takers and fakers and matchers. Which one are you? Are you a giver? Are you a taker? Are you a faker or a matcher? I think I'm kind of a matcher. I'd like to be a giver when I grow up. God is the only true giver. He's the alpha. That means he's the source. He's the omega. That means he's the end. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And in him all things hold together. Everything comes from God. Every good gift in your life is from God himself. Nobody has ever beholden any beauty, experienced any good, experienced any pleasure, received any nourishment, 
lived any life apart from God himself. Scripture says that we are all made of dust. And if God were to choose and he withdrew his breath from us, we would all return to the very dust from which we came. Dust dust itself having come from God. Paul once again says, what do you have that you did not receive? I would love to see every single person answer that question. What do you have? Name one thing you have that you did not receive. And if you received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? You have been the source of nothing. God has been the giver of everything. He himself is the only head. He has no needs. He is fully sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful. God can do anything he wants at any point in time. And what this means is this. We, at our best, at our shining best, are just vessels, conduits. We just are like, as scripture says, pots of clay that God himself fashioned together for his own purposes. He can take it, he can slam it on the ground, he can break it. He can love on it, he can paint it, he can use it, he can stick it on a shelf. God can do whatever he wants with us because he owns us, he made us, he's our creator. We have no rights. I know Americans love rights. We don't have any, not relative to God. Thankfully, God made us in his image. We are valuable. We have worth, but only because we are made in God's image. So, if this is true, here's what it means. It means that we all grow at each other's expense. It means that whenever we are giving, we are simultaneously receiving. We have never, ever, not once for a moment, committed an act of pure giving. You have never, ever just given. You have always also received. That in your endeavor to do evangelism or love or serve or give, you have only walked on two-way streets. In fact... Paul says, if you are truly giving, it is more blessed. That's the word, Greek word for happy. You are happier when you give. In fact, it is to your benefit when you give. It is impossible to outgive what you receive as you give. So the very act of trying to give causes you to receive even more. That's kingdom economics. So, my friends, I want to share with you, as we end here, one evangelism strategy that I think is really the um, only way to do evangelism, especially in our day and time. Have you heard of the Prattfall effect? Prattfall effect is a, this is a little bit wordy, but it'll make sense to you. And you'll have an aha moment about this, as I did. The Prattfall effect is a psychological phenomenon 
whereby the attractiveness of a person who is perceived as competent increases if the person commits a blunder. So, for example, um, if you perceive person A to be a powerful person or uh, somebody that, you know, is a good person, like a movie star or something that you are starstruck by, if they spill coffee on themselves, your sense of respect and appreciation and feelings of affection and connection for that person will actually go up. Right? Conversely, Praful Effect says, the attractiveness of a person perceived as incompetent decreases if the person commits a blunder. And so if there's somebody that you kind of look down to and they make a mistake, you're actually going to look down on them even more. Here's what this means with regard to evangelism. If you think you're competent, if you think you're something special, your weakness will actually help you when you're doing evangelism. Sharing your vulnerabilities and your mistakes with somebody that you're trying to share the gospel with is by far and away the best way to clear the way for Jesus to walk into their heart. Because in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. But your strength will actually get in the way. Your strength is what prevents them from feeling like whatever you think you possess, i.e. Jesus Christ, is relevant to them. Because we all at our core perceive ourselves to be weak. Does that make sense? Conversely, if, you pers- if people already perceive you as incompetent, and the truth is they do. They don't think we're as great as we think we are. That's another psychological phenomenon that I forget the name to, but it, it, it exists. This tendency to live in our own delusions. So the world around us already believes, because you are a Christian primarily in this day and age, you're already incompetent then your owning up, fessing up, and self-awareness of the fact that you are pretty incompetent wins them over even further. And so the strategy is to share your weakness because it's a win-win strategy. You don't share your greatness. You share your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. Now, I can tell you as a professional evangelist, The one thing that has helped me more in my task of helping people come to Christ is what Dave Chappelle, our contemporary theologian and friend, calls a perpetual line stepper. I have been, for most of my life, inappropriate and offensive. And I have erred on the side of being vulnerable and transparent about my foibles. That alone, being Being a perpetual line stepper has helped me more than any piece of theology or strategy I could have ever devised. You tell me, what do you think my strength is in preaching? It's my weakness. It's not my strength. I tell Susie stories, but if I told you Susie stories where I'm better than her, wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. 
Because you already perceive me as incompetent. If I were to then be in denial about that, <laughs> the praffle effect would kick in and I'd be out of a job. Okay? Your likability, your emotional intelligence, your authenticity, your integrity, your Mobius strip. Your ability to be a safe person. <laughs> That's a picture of integrity, where the inside is the outside and the outside is the inside. Your ability to be a safe person to the souls around you who are shy, according to Parker Palmer, is going to determine whether you succeed as an evangelist, primarily because through your weakness you share the weakness of Christ, the heart of Christ, who bled and died for us, who hung on a cross, not as a strong man, but as a weak person, as a sheep led to the slaughter. Jesus Christ, the most safe and holy person I know. And my question for you is, can this church and can the Christians of this church be a safe and holy people in a safe and holy place where there's a buzz and a culture of invitation? Naturally. As we conclude, I want to read to you the mission statement that we're still working on. MICC, Mercer Island Covenant Church, hopes to be a church where people can learn about Jesus and his great love for us, where they can come as they are, where they can experience grace and forgiveness in a tangible way, where they can serve others and be a light in the world. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> you are, God, the great evangelist. You have reached out to us. You have revealed yourself to us, not just in the resurrection of your son, but in the death, in the suffering, and in the weaknesses of your son. And so we relate to him and we cling to him. We identify with him for he has withstood and now understands every temptation by which we are tempted. And so we give ourselves wholly to you in response. May that be the story of our own lives as well. May we continue to do even greater things than Jesus himself did. This we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.